Our text this morning is Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Uh, next week we're going to do something a little bit special because it's Reformation Sunday, so we won't be in Ephesians next week, I don't think anyway, I think we'll be in Romans. But uh, Ephesians 1 for this week, 17 and 18. Let's give attention to the Word of God together. We're kind of picking up in the middle of a sentence here with verse 17. Actually, let's just start with 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that is the word of God, and may he add his blessing to the reading of it. Father, this morning we ask that you would make your book live for us, and that you would show us yourself in your word, that you would explain to us how things really are, and that you would disabuse us of mistaken notions that we have about the way things really are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to introduce you this morning, and because I preached at the RefCon uh, yesterday, I, I had a lot on my plate, and uh, I didn't get notes put up for slides, and so that's my fault. But I, I was intending to put this up on the, on the screen when I wrote it. I want to introduce you this morning to a new word or a new term that probably most of you have never heard. And that word, that term, is the noetic effects of sin. Noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C. The noetic effects of sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, noetic comes from the Greek word for mind. So the noetic effects of sin are the effects of sin, and especially of original sin that we're born with and dwells in us, that cloud our ability to think correctly about God and about Jesus Christ and about the Bible as the Word of God and about ourselves. So for instance, you might ask yourself, why the Jews as a whole do not see Jesus as the promised Messiah? I mean, when you read your Old Testament, there are certain passages that just pop and they just scream, Jesus, these point to Jesus. One of them is, you know, Psalm 22, they have pierced my hands and my feet and they're wagging their tongues at me. Or how about Isaiah 53, the suffering servant song? How could you read that and not see Jesus? And Paul tells us, why that happens. He tells us how that works. If you got your, we're going to be doing some flipping today, and especially since I didn't have the text put up on the screen, I'm going to ask you if you've got your Bible to flip along with me and flip to 2 Corinthians and chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, Paul explains what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak, what's going on in the places and the realms that we can't observe directly. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, or 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. 
Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Spirit of the Lord is, there is, I'm sorry, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Picking up in chapter 4, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, what is Paul saying there? Paul's saying that a veil lies over the minds of, in, initially he's talking about the Jewish people who are rejecting Christ by and large, but then he, he kind of expands it to other people as well. Do you see that in the text of Scripture? Hardened minds, hardened hearts, hearts that are darkened because a veil lies over the eyes of the heart. And it's not just the Jews, of course, because he says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So what Paul is saying is, we proclaim things about Christ in a really plain way. And the reason people don't get that or don't like it or don't want it is not because of the communication or the style of communication or the method of communication, it's because a veil lies over their hearts. And that veil is the noetic effects of sin. And, and it says this in other places in the Bible too. If you want to flip back a book to 1 Corinthians and chapter 2, Paul says, and actually 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is a great commentary on Ephesians 1 verses 17 and 18. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, we read something very similar. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man doesn't accept the things of God. They seem stupid because they're spiritually discerned. Why do they seem stupid? Because of the noetic effects of sin. How about Romans chapter 1? Go back another book. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. We, we read the whole thing last week. We'll hone in on one passage here. Romans 1 and verse 21. For although they knew God, 
That is because of natural revelation, because God has revealed things about himself in the creation of the world. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let's do just one more. This from the lips of Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. And uh, this is for a lot of people when they actually read it and think about it, kind of a shocking text of scripture. These are shocking words of Jesus if you don't understand these things. Matthew 13, starting in verse 10. You know, when, when I was in Sunday school, I remember uh, the teacher in my, Sunday, my children's Sunday school class taught me that the reason Jesus taught in parables was so that people would find the, the scriptures and the information about God easy to remember and understand. Jesus says the opposite in this passage. Look at what he says here. The disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now we need to understand that that veiled, blinded mind is the default human condition. That's how we're born. That's how all of us are. It's the default human condition A man or a woman can only come to Christ if the Spirit of God comes and removes that veil and gives them eyes to see and ears to hear and an opened heart. And if the Spirit of God doesn't do that, then they will not see, hear, understand, and turn. Now, a clear grasp of that fact will clarify a lot of other things if you think about it, won't it? For instance, think about all the approaches to evangelism that you've been taught, say, that the church has been taught in, say, the last 50 years. People tend to think of evangelism in the last 50 years as simply a kind of persuading that is really not any different than persuading in other ways, for other things. As though if you present Jesus in his most flattering and attractive light, then people will accept Jesus and become Christians. And so they think what we must do is use the normal worldly techniques of persuasion. We, uh, we're gonna use the techniques that we find that are so effective in things like marketing and advertising from the secular world as though the same things that will influence you to buy Coca-Cola or buy an Audi will convince you to come to saving faith in Jesus. Or, or they do um, a version of that timeshare pitch uh, 
where the, the company comes to you and says, would you like a free one-week vacation, all expenses paid in Florida? And you go, yeah, all you have to do is listen to a half-hour sales pitch. Oh, a half-hour out of a whole week? That sounds great. And you get down there, and they lock you in a room for the whole afternoon and put the screws to you. What they're doing is they're giving you something you want in the hopes that they can then give you something you don't want, probably. And that's what people do with Jesus. They, they turned uh, coming to Jesus Christ into a timeshare condo in some dismal swamp in Florida. Uh, for, for example, just give me an example of this. Back, back when I lived in western South Dakota, um, there was a, a, a town nearby called Spearfish that had a university, Black Hills State University. Go Yellow Jackets. And... Um, and uh, there was a, a guy that came to campus who was a traveling magician. And he would come and he would do a magic show and there were posters put up all over the place for this magic show. And you were invited to come for free to watch this magic show. And it was a pretty good magic show from what I'm being told. But right there in the middle, what he didn't tell you is he was a Christian evangelist. And right there in the middle of the show, didn't do it at the end, he didn't do it at the beginning so you could make an informed decision about what you wanted to do. Right there in the middle of the show, he would stop and give an evangelism presentation because the crowd felt the most trapped in that moment. And I don't know how effective it was. I don't think it was probably effective at all. But I can remember looking at that and going, that's just bait and switch. That's, that's exactly the way the world does things. And you're peddling Jesus with the most sincere of intentions, I'm sure, but with a mistaken understanding of where the problem lies. And we get this in all sorts of little things, little pieties that, that we bow to. For instance, we, we tell people, um, if you're going to evangelize, you've got to build a relationship with the person first so that you're coming from a, a position of trust. No, you don't. You don't. How do I know that? Because the whole book of Acts, the church's most effective hour of evangelism in the whole history of the church, there wasn't anything about, well, I've got, I got to go into Ephesus and build a relationship with these people for a year or two, and then maybe I can tell them about Jesus. No, he just went to the synagogue and said, Jesus, sin, salvation, Jesus, what do you want to do with it? And some people said, that sounds amazing. And some people said, get the heck out of here. And Paul said, okay, I've done my duty. Those of you that want to learn about Jesus, come with me to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. No, no. They tell you, well, you, you got to be winsome. And you got to be, you know, attractive. you got to dress nice in your church and, you know, present a very polished image and all these things. Then people will like you, and then they'll be attracted to your Jesus. No, they won't. They tell you, well, well you've got to do these concrete acts of love and service. You've got to give them stuff if they're in need. And then in the giving of them, when they know that you love them, then they'll be more interested in hearing about your Jesus. No, they won't. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to dress nicely or to present a polished outward image if that's important. I'm not saying it's wrong to give people things. What I'm saying is that doesn't influence the outcome precisely because of the noetic effects of sin. 
Some people like to argue. I'm one of those people. You might have picked up on that a little bit in the last couple of years. Some people like to argue. They like to debate. And so they will do their evangelism in debate form, as though in order to persuade people that Jesus is the Messiah is simply a matter of, con- of, of presenting the most compelling logical argument. Well, there's nothing wrong with debate. It can be a useful tool, but it's not going to make someone come to Jesus who would not otherwise come to Jesus. Or they take a play out of the the Book of Mormon's operating manual, the Mormon church's operating manual. When the Mormons come to your door, and you you get those guys, I love those guys, because I I like to talk to them a lot. And uh, when the Mormons come to your door, They've all got their little black ties and their white shirts and they're bicycling around and they've got their little name tags. I'm elder this, even though I'm 17 years old. And uh, they come to your door and, and they present this very kind of normal, wholesome image, right? And, and they cast their beliefs and they start talking about their beliefs more or less as mainstream Protestantism, hoping to get you into their church and kind of get knitted in. And then only later do you find out about the really, really bizarre and strange stuff that Mormons actually believe. They, they don't come to your door and say, we just want to tell you that God used to be a human being on another planet. And uh, if you become a good, good Mormon, a temple Mormon, you can be a god on your own planet and you can be in control of all that and you can have lots of spirit babies with your multiple wives. They don't tell you about that stuff. They don't lead with that because you'd be like, you guys are nuts. Thank you for your time. And you'd slam the door. Well, Christians do that too. They did it to Jane Fonda. You might remember, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, there was a brief little buzz, Jane Fonda's being born again. And and then all of a sudden, you didn't hear anything about Jane Fonda being born again. Do you know why? She talks about it on her own website. You can go and read it. She, she was evangelized by some friends of hers in Atlanta who were from the church, and they led her to pray some prayer, and they told her that she was saved, and then they invited her to a Bible study to start instructing her in the new faith that she had believed savingly. And only when she began to be systematically instructed in what Christianity is did she realize what she'd gotten herself into. And, and she, on her own website, she says, these people wanted me to say that Jesus died for our sins. I can't say that. I don't believe that. And when, when you ask her, when, when she answers the question, well, what, what happened to you in that time? She talks about her conversion, as she calls it. And according to her, uh, she had spent her whole life wanting to be, trying to be perfect so that people would love her. And she thinks, You can't be a whole person, whatever whole person means, if you're trying to be perfect. And then she said, something happened to me and I could feel myself becoming a whole person. So I don't need to worry about being perfect. I can just be a whole person. And I knew this is what God is. That's a direct quote. This is what God is. Understand she's not saying, Jesus made me feel whole. That would be valid in one way or another. God made me feel whole. She's saying that God is literally her sensation of holiness, or of wholeness, I'm sorry. And she ended up embracing a bunch of new age weirdness where Jesus is an exalted figure who stands beside as an equal to Buddha and Muhammad and other enlightened ones. 
What were they trying to do? Well, they were trying to get her with something that she thought she wanted and then give her something that she didn't. It's just wrong. Just tell people what you need to tell them. The, God can use whatever he wants, but we are prone to many errors unless we understand that the key issues are really only two. Number one, every mind is darkened and veiled, and only the Holy Spirit can remove the veil. And number two, that is outside of our power to do. So rather than using all sorts of stunts and manipulations or techniques or parlor tricks or intellectual or emotional manipulations, we should simply do what the apostles did in the book of Acts. We should simply tell people who Jesus is and then tell them why they need to come to him and then leave those outcomes to God. And we should be really, really clear so people know what they're getting into. One of the best evangelists I ever knew had, had an interesting approach to evangelism. He would talk to people about Jesus on a college campus, and when they, they seemed like they were interested, um, they, they, they would say, well, can you think of any reason not to come to Christ? And they would say, no, which is, of course, a, if you've ever been trained in sales, can you think of any reason so that I can overcome your objection? It, he would, they would say, no, I can't think of any reason why I wouldn't want to come to Christ. And he'd say, well, let me give you about five reasons why you wouldn't. Number one, you're going to lose your life. Number two, you're going to be crucified, died, and resurrected. Number three, you're going to suffer for Jesus. Number four, you're going to have to forsake sin, including some really cherished ones. And he would go down the list of what does it mean to accept Jesus really? And a lot of people went, oh, I didn't know I was signing up for that. Never mind. And some people went, yeah, I don't care about that. Jesus is worth it. I want to follow Jesus. Those were the true converts. Those were the true disciples. So the noetic effects of sin are the real problem in evangelism. But according to this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, the noetic effects of sin are also a current problem for Christians. They're not completely dealt with and done away with at conversion. The, the Holy Spirit does remove a portion of the blindness, does give you a, a, some light. He gives you some real knowledge, and you act on it, and you receive Jesus. But the whole thing about your sinful nature and the noetic effects of sin is not completely dealt with in that moment. And that's what today's passage is about. Paul is, in this passage, praying for these dear believers, and he's convinced that they are genuine believers. He calls them saints, holy ones. He's convinced of their sincerity. And the reason he's convinced of that is because he's heard about the observable things that were reported about them. He's heard about their faith in Jesus Christ that made an actual difference in how they behaved and that was on display for everybody in the world to see. And he heard about their love towards all the saints. And he said, you know, based on that, you guys gotta be real Christians. But there's still more that Paul desires for these real Christians, for these believers. He's thanking God for them and he's praying for them unceasingly because there's more. There's more that needs to be given. And what does he pray? He prays, he wants God, the Father, to give them more more of something. Now, there's a little bit of a disagreement here. In, in some versions, you read that Paul is asking God the Father to give these Christians a spirit, 
small s, of revelation and knowledge, indicating that what he's asking God to give them is something that would rise from within them by God's grace and enable them to do something. In the same way, perhaps, that like Daniel had an extraordinary spirit. It says that in Daniel chapter 6. He had an excellent spirit that caused him to excel in all that he did far above his co-workers. And the King James Version and the New King James Version translate it that way. So does the New American Standard. But it's also legitimate, as I look into the Greek grammar, to translate it as, I ask that God would give you the Spirit, capital S, of revelation and of knowledge. In other words, he's talking again about more gifts from the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit who first removed the spiritual veil and opened your eyes and unstopped your ears so that you could come to Christ and be born again would further push back and would further heal the noetic effects of sin that still remain in you. The NIV translates it that way. It's interesting that the ESV, I've got old ESVs um, and, uh, and I've only got one new one. The ESV, the original 2001 text, had a small s, but the, the editors changed their minds somewhere along the way, and Bibles printed after 2016 change it to a big S. So they say instead of a spirit, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, capital S. And I think the capital S is correct. I think Paul is asking God to send the Holy Spirit in fuller and fuller measures into the lives of these believers in order to give them a great blessing. Now, we will find out later that there are some weaknesses and there are some problems in this congregation or in these congregations. It was probably a circular letter and several people, congregations would have read it. These congregations who received this letter originally had some problems. And that's one of the reasons why Paul wrote his letters to address the problems that had come up in individual congregations and to correct what was wrong and to encourage in what was right and to instruct where there was weakness. These congregations had some problems and you can kind of read between the lines and see what those problems are. Um, we will find, for instance, that there seemed to be a distance or a rift or a disengagement or an estrangement or something between the Jewish part of the church and the Gentile believers in the church. And that's a real problem. And Paul writes to correct it later on. There seemed to be, a little later on we find out, some impatience or some cold indifference on the part of some believers towards other believers who were more immature or more troublesome or more annoying. And some of them were looking at everything that Paul had suffered and they're tempted to lose heart. They say to themselves, you know, if that's the way the apostle Paul is treated and God seems to really like him and God allowed that, why should I not be terrified of what this God might put me through? Because he's got to like Paul better than he likes me. And if he puts Paul through that, <laughs> what's he going to do to me? And so Paul writes to tell them that they ought not to lose heart. There are hints of problems with sexual immorality and covetousness and dirty jokes even among them. There was strife apparently between wives and husbands and parents and children. 
There were masters who were being cruel to slaves who were fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in addition to just being fellow human beings and you shouldn't even be cruel to your fellow human beings. And there was a, a spiritual warfare that, that needed to be fought and it wasn't going well because the people didn't understand their spiritual weapons and their spiritual armor and how to use them. And so there was a lack of prayer and there was a lack of effective dealing with demonic spirits in the lives of the people in the congregation. And all of these are serious problems which the mighty apostle needs to deal with, but he doesn't start there. He doesn't start with those problems. He doesn't start with those deficiencies and say, now you need to quit doing this and start doing that and that stinks and that's good and you know, move this around. And do he doesn't start there at all. Instead, he says, you need the Holy Spirit to give you revelation of knowledge and wisdom first. Notice also that he doesn't pray, for instance, for release from persecution. He doesn't pray for riches or comfort. He doesn't pray for them to have the pleasures of this world. He doesn't pray for their businesses to be successful. He doesn't even pray that their illnesses would be healed. He prays for wisdom and knowledge. Now there's a, a message here, and I'm convinced of it. The greatest need that you and I have after coming to Christ is wisdom and revelation of knowledge about the triune God. And why is that? Well, the New Testament gives only one explicit definition of salvation or of eternal life, and it's found in John chapter 17 and verse three. Jesus is praying to the Father. It's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's a wonderful prayer. It's worthy of your intense study. And Jesus says to God in prayer, in the hearing of the disciples, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To be saved is to know God, and to know God is to be saved. Now, keep in mind that know here doesn't mean to know about God. It doesn't mean to have met God once in passing. It refers to a deep experience of another person. It's an ongoing fellowship. It's not dissimilar to the relationship between a loving husband and wife in a marriage. Now, here we have to draw some distinctions about how we talk about what it means to be saved and about being saved. It, it helps if you understand that the word salvation in the original Greek and in the original Hebrew too, just means deliverance or rescue from that which would harm you or destroy you. So when you are born again, you can say to have been saved from a conscious eternal death in hell. You are saved from that. You will never experience that. You have rescued from that horrible fate. You don't need to ever worry about that again. But there are still other things that you need to be delivered from, other enemies that need to be defeated in your life. There are other things from which you need to be saved that you haven't been saved from yet when you're born again. You aren't delivered, for instance, when you're born again immediately from the attacks of the devil. That's why you need that spiritual armor that Paul's going to talk about in Ephesians chapter 6. You need to be saved from that. It hasn't happened yet. 
You haven't yet been saved from sin's presence and sin's influence in your life. And you'll need God's help to progressively rid yourself of the power of sin and what power that sin still has over your life. And you need the Holy Spirit's help for that job. And you still live on planet Earth. You still live in corrupt 21st century America. Even if you're no longer of the world, you are still in the world. And the world is working very hard to squeeze you back into its mold, to put you back into your old place. So you need deliverance or salvation, ultimately, out of this world. So if salvation or the eternal kind of life, which you start living here and now and continue living forever, is defined as knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, then can you not see how deliverance or salvation from the devil and the flesh and the world is going to involve pressing deeper into your experiential relational knowledge of God? It's one thing to know in your head that you should not commit a certain sin and that if you do commit it, you ought to repent of it after you commit it. And that's not wrong, that's good knowledge in your head. But when you commit that sin, and you feel the Spirit of God withdraw from you because you've grieved the Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, that changes head knowledge into heart knowledge. It changes the temptation moment from, I really want to do that, and I know I shouldn't, and I hope my powers of resistance hold out, to, oh, well, that does have a certain level of attraction, I suppose. But the pleasure I would gain doesn't really compare to the grief and the bitter disappointment I would know when I grieve the Holy Spirit and he moves away from me. So it's just not worth it. Yeah, I, I could get a little bit of pleasure here, but I lose the pleasure of walking close with God and that spirit of complete contentment and joy I find in him. God also threatens us, doesn't he? We don't, we don't like to hear about that, but he threatens us with his fatherly displeasure and with divine discipline. And his punishments, when he decides to let them go, can be swift and severe. And they can impact you for the rest of your life. If you want a biblical example of that, think about King David. The blessing of God was upon him for his whole life, right up until the moment that he slept with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered by putting him in a place in battle and withdrawing support from him. And the enemy killed him. And Nathan the prophet comes to David after the fact and he comes with the Lord's words on his lips. And one of the things he says is, your sin is forgiven, but the sword will never depart from your house and I will raise up evil against your house all of your days. And so it was. One son raped his half-sister, and David didn't do anything about it. So her blood brother rose up and killed the guy that raped his sister because David didn't deal with it. Then that son decides, you know what, I could be a better king than my dad, and he usurps David's throne, and David has lost so much support, so much moral authority that he ends up having to flee for his life. 
and restoring himself to his throne means the death of that son, Absalom. And then the rightful heir, Solomon, ends up having to kill another son who tries to take the throne when David is near death. And, and then on top of that, David's disobedience regarding a census also costs the lives of 70,000 of his own people. And God said, because of your sin, I am bringing these things into your life as discipline, as punishment. You're saved, but I'm gonna make you sorry. And God does that. Have you ever, in the heat of temptation, or in the cold calculations of willful sin, felt the anger of your heavenly Father burn against you? Have you? Have you ever felt the terror of an affronted and offended God? I have to tell you, there was one time where I was wrestling with temptation, and I was frankly on the edge of losing that battle. And the Lord came to me very clearly and he said, if you do this thing, I will tear everything from you that you love. I will tear it right out of your hands and you will never get it back for the rest of your life. And he meant it. And I only avoided that sin by the skin of my teeth precisely because of that warning. And that came as a result of the spirit of revelation and of knowledge that the Holy Spirit was working in my life to push me, to deepen me, because I, I cried out. I was like, Lord, I'm, I need this. I, I need to be delivered from this. I'm, I'm not doing well here. And, and he did. He did it in a really scary way, but he did. You learn in doing this, not only what you should do, but also why you should do it, and how you can do it when you deepen your life with the Lord. Obedience starts to make sense kind of from the inside out or from the bottom up. It, it seems good, obedience seems good, it seems pleasant, you feel, you, you feel a sense of privilege, you feel your dignity as a child of God. The deeper you go into Christ, the deeper you have a spirit of revelation and of knowledge. Now keep in mind, when we talk about a spirit of revelation, we're not saying that God is gonna give you information that's not found in his Bible. What we're saying is God is going to deepen your experiential understanding of himself in all the ways that are congruent with the information that's found in your Bible. You feel this sense of privilege. You feel your dignity. This is a place where education and professional attainment and worldly advantage don't convey any advantage. The humble saint who has never graduated from high school can know more by lived experience in this way than the graduate from Harvard or the graduate from Yale can know by book learning. So press further and further into God. Seek to know him. Pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Pray that you come to a place where you can taste the truth like honey. Here is knowledge that will never become obsolete. Here is a way of living with your Lord that is easy, that is pleasant, that is good. Even when your journey is rigorous and the hills you have to climb with God are steep and the mountains you have to attain the summit of are very high, God is with you and he makes this unburdensome. 
There's a kind of easiness to it, even in the midst of the sweaty work. It's not miserable. It's joy. Really what God is doing is inviting us here to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so I'm just going to ask you to take him at his word, to pray for yourself and for those who you love and you're concerned about. Father, give us all a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge. Open the eyes of my heart further. Help me to press deeper into you. Help me to know you. Because that's what's going to change me. Heal my mind. Open my eyes. Unstop my ears. Give my hands your holy strength. And let me serve you 